Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. New Yorkers crowded into Manhattan's west side in defiance of social distancing bans to welcome the USNS Comfort's glide into the city's harbor on March 30th. In addition to providing some relief to the city's besieged hospitals, the large white ship, festooned with red crosses, gave the appearance of a powerful symbol of the military's ability to respond to a crisis. What most of the apparently grateful people lining the waterfront did not know is that the military's health system has been gutted in recent years, despite repeated warnings from medical professionals. The public show of military doctors aiding in the coronavirus response belies the fact that the military health system lacks the ability to handle even the routine health needs of the services during normal conditions. A Defense Department Inspector General investigation found, for example, that because of a shortage of doctors, the Langley Air Force Hospital in Virginia had only one provider for every 1,600 patients, even though regulations require there be only 1,250 patients per provider, a regulation that still leaves a burdensome caseload. These shortages, the Inspector General found, meant patients may have been at risk of increased health complications due to longer wait times. Those shortages are due in large part to placing a much higher priority on spending for pet weapons programs. Evidence of this can be seen in the service's most recent so-called unfunded priorities list, through which the services try to get money for programs that were not included in the department's regular annual budget request. The Navy did request $11.6 million to upgrade the USNS Mercy Hospital ship, but that was the only health care-related request in any of the service's wish lists. The Navy devoted the rest of their $5.42 billion request to things like a submarine, F-35s, and missiles. The Army is requesting over $7 billion, more than half of which is meant to pay for current overseas operations. Of what remains, the Army has earmarked a third to purchase helicopters, armored vehicles, and simulators. The rest is to build barracks and child care centers and to pay for other building renovations. None goes to health care. And the Air Force similarly did not request additional funds for health care. Unless quick action is taken, the services may not have enough doctors and nurses to respond to either a domestic crisis or battlefield needs when the nation goes to war. The nation has already seen a preview of the coming crisis in military medicine when the Army had to reach out to retired military doctors and medics to return to service as part of a voluntary recall to help fight the coronavirus. Fortunately, many were listening because within days of notifications being sent to more than 800,000 former soldiers, approximately 25,000 volunteers stepped forward to backfill positions and in military treatment facilities as troops deployed to the field hospitals in American cities to deal with patients stricken by the virus. Undoubtedly, military leaders resorted to such measures due to the scale of the coronavirus response but a review of government reports and medical journal articles, as well as conversations with military doctors, shows that years of reduced spending on the Defense Department's health services, reductions to the medical corps staff, and efforts to outsource military health care to civilian hospitals strained the system long before the virus emerged and set the stage to call for volunteers. 
One of those issuing warnings was retired Army doctor Robert Adams. He had what can only be described as an epic military career. He started as a sailor after graduating from the Naval Academy. He became a Navy SEAL, where he served for 12 years, rising to the rank of commander. He then gave that up to become an Army Second Lieutenant to attend medical school at Wake Forest University. He served as an Army doctor with stints as the Delta Force Command Surgeon and as a family medicine physician. He deployed to Iraq in 2004 to establish a critical care facility in Habania. He and I discussed his journey from Navy SEAL to an Army doctor, serving on the front lines in Iraq, and the struggles of running a small private practice in North Carolina. We also spoke about the contributions military health professionals make across the entire medical community and the potential consequences of plans to cut thousands of military doctors and nurses. I am a fifth-generation career military, had no intention to joining the military when I was in high school. But in 1967, Reader's Digest uh, put out an article called Super Commandos of the Wetlands announcing the existence of Navy SEALs. And I read that and went, oh, my, that's what I want to do with my life. Went to my dad and said, okay, I know I told you I didn't want anything to do with the military, but how do I get into the Naval Academy? Because I'm going to be a SEAL. And if I'm going to be a SEAL, I might as well be an officer. If, I might as well, if I'm going to be an officer, I might as well do what all my ancestors did and go to an academy. Because my dad was Naval Academy. My granddad was superintendent of the Naval Academy. His father and his wife's father were West Point graduates. And their father's commissioning certificate signed by Abraham Lincoln at the Battle of Gettysburg hang on my wall upstairs. So I was making a family decision to achieve a life goal was to go to SEAL training. And uh, luckily, I got into the Naval Academy. It was able to um, get into SEAL training later, which was the most fun I've ever had uh, with my clothes on. And the Years went by, and uh, I got got promoted, made it all the way to the rank of commander in the Navy, but realized that being a rootin' tootin' frogman was not an old man's job. So started looking around for something as fun as being a SEAL platoon commander, and sort of stumbled on the idea of going to medical school at 30 years old, and went to my wife and said, "Would you mind if we become really poor again and let me go to medical school?" And she looked at me and said, uh, you know, we were poor and happy when we got married. We can be poor and happy again. Go do it. And um, next thing I know, I, put, I got accepted to Wake Forest University. So I th put a scholarship request in to the Navy and the Army. Now I'm a full bird. I'm a, I'm a full bird. I'm a full commander in the Navy now. And um, they send me a scholarship for three years of med school. And the Army sends me a scholarship for four. I put on my dress uniform, went back to D.C., held the two pieces of paper in my hand and said, you know, sir, Congress is going to pay for me to go to four years of med school. The only question is, what uniform am I going to wear? You need to match the Army's offer. And I'm a Navy doctor. And the, the, the captain, 06 in charge, said, sorry, son, you didn't qualify for the four year. Three is the best I can do. <laughs> And I still look back on it and laugh because I said, well, all right, thanks for your time. I hope we serve together one day. But when we do, I'm going to be in a different uniform. And um, and that is the uh, the true story that the two-star admiral that swore me into the Army as a second lieutenant 
while I was wearing my Navy commander's uniform, questioned at the time. But uh, he verified it, called up to D.C., said, that really happened? And they said, yeah. And he came back, swore me into the Army of the Second Lieutenant. He goes, you know, Bob, you did, I, did, I love pe- helping medical students become Army and Navy officers, and there's these scholarship programs, but I just turned a Navy commander and an Army Second Lieutenant, and I can't bring myself to congratulate you. <laughs> and the Army had me from then on. <laughs> Can you describe what it was like as a, well, young isn't exactly the right term, but as a new Army doctor and what the early part of your career as an Army doctor was like? So that that's actually a re- really insightful question because uh, having spent 14 years in the Navy uh, and then suddenly finding myself in the Army, there was an absolute transition period. They don't use the same words in the Army that they use in the Navy. They don't have the same ranks. And, uh, and it was a definite learning process. The, the good news is that during your four years of med school, I had an opportunity to do the uh, uh, month of summer training each year and uh, and got a little exposed to Army hospitals. And again, I'm also learning a medical core, a whole new environment. And uh, that was a that was a good introduction. By the time I showed up to, as a physician graduate from med school, I've had some some months in the army system, uh, and I was promoted. Uh, most doctors are promoted to captains when they graduate, which is an 03. Because of prior service, I was gra- I was commissioned as an 04. So I found myself in you know positions of responsibility earlier than some might. And that was a that was a challenge too. The leadership part of it was not a challenge, but you know, knowing enough to be successful was, and uh, you know, a representative story of that is I spent the three years of my residency in Washington State, and that is an all-inclusive, exhausting process of on call every second or third night and up all night and trying to gobble as much information as you can. The uh, but when you're done, then you become a teacher and you're out there training other doctors. And my first assignment was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I arrived in July. And uh, luckily, there were some Navy SEALs that, and there still are Navy SEALs that work in the Joint Special Operations Command. And they invited me to go parachuting with them, which I hadn't done in seven years of med school and residency. But uh, I said yes immediately, got to do some static line and free fall parachuting and was feeling pretty good about, you know, my first month in the Army and my Navy SEAL guys had connected with me and I'm jumping out of airplanes again. And um, one month after I was there, phone rings and it says, sir, would you please report to the second of the 32582nd Airborne Division uh, unit? They're expecting you and they need you now. Whatever you're doing, stop it and go. I went, uh-oh somebody's getting activated for something real. And sure enough, that was my, my order to go join the 82nd Airborne and parachute into Haiti with 3,500 other paratroopers as the number one doctor on the number one aircraft tasked to take care of the division commander. And I went, oh my, <laughs> talk about transitioning. This is going to be different. And uh, so that was an early career opportunity. And and a lot of people don't know this story. So if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you, we launched 3,500 paratroopers in August of 1994 to invade Haiti. Colin Powell was in Haiti at the time talking to the president to get him to surrender. We had troops on the ground and 3,500 
troops in the air two hours out when he turned to the president and said, Mr. President, I'm now authorized to tell you that if you don't say I surrender now, the 82nd Airborne arrives in two hours and we're going to kill you. <laughs> and he surrendered on the spot and they turned the 3,500s around and brought us home. And I still think the president should have given us a unit citation for the first invasion to win a war without firing a shot. Yeah, right. Talk about deterrence. That's a major deterrent. <laughs> so we gave him a million dollars in an airplane out of there and, and Haiti did not have to go to war. Then, But interestingly, soon after I got back, you know, people are starting to point to this doctor on Fort Bragg in an army uniform wearing a Navy SEAL patch on it. And I get a call. I get a knock on the door from the Army's Delta Force uh, people. And they said, sir, would you like to come work with us? And, you know, I told him no initially because I was, you know, brand new doc and almost been to war once already. And I'd already played the special ops game. So I said, you know, check with me in a couple of years and maybe then. And two years later, they knocked on the door and said, how about now? And I became the uh, command surgeon for the Army's Delta Force for the next four years and with rapid deployment uh, opportunities all over the world and uh, got a chance to save some lives in a, in a special operations environment. It was a wonderful combination of medical and special ops skills. Enjoyed it immensely. Oh, I bet. So can can you describe your experiences as an army doctor deployed in Iraq? Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, in my introduction, you didn't mention that I've just published a book um, called Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey. And that has a couple, well, a number of chapters about my experience in, in, in Iraq, because the war experience has no similarity of, of substance to a peacetime environment. You know, it's a 24-hour-a-day job. It never ends. It, it presents you with um, medical situations that you just would have never imagined would show up. You know, examples as simple as People swimming in a local river get infected with a germ called schistosomiasis that I have, I never saw before and I've never seen since, but I needed to treat it. And the other opposite extreme of uh, having to uh, deal with major traumas, uh, gunshot wounds, amputations, explosive uh, injuries, that you know, no matter what your specialty is, nobody trains in their residency for for war type casualties. So that was very difficult, and I was um, lucky to be assigned to the 82nd Airborne. A great bunch of soldiers, um, unlucky to be at the early part of the war where there was nothing when we got there. Um, I I was assigned to build a clinic in Habania, Iraq which is bad, middle of bad guy country on an old bombed out Royal Air Force airfield. We had no power, no water. Uh, there was none of the buildings had any windows or doors in them or wires or because everything had been scavenged. So we had to build a medical clinic from just clay walls and a roof, which we did. And, and it took a couple months before we got uh, things safe, you know, or, or optimally set up with generators for light and, and water and, you know, brought in by on water buffaloes, not the animal, but the military device that carries water. And, uh, and then we even got, you know, got internet, we got radio, telephone and um, uh, air conditioning eventually 
which at 130 degrees in the middle of the desert was very much appreciated by our patients. So that that was a um, six-month experience, four months of which was in the Habani area. And then I had an incredible opportunity out of the blue, because by then I was a full bird colonel now. This is 2003, 2004. And um, the, U the Agency for International Development gave $250,000 to the U.S. to hold a medical conference in Baghdad, uh, which wasn't that much safer than where I was. But, but I got tasked with spending that money to bring in uh, 500 Iraqi doctors from all over the country of Iraq into the Baghdad area and teach them what had changed in medicine in the last 25 years. And in order to do that, I, I flew in 32 doctors from the United States and Great Britain, brought them into Jordan, had them uh, sitting there ready to come in and teach these doctors what was going on. And we had been advertising this on the brand new internet, which Iraq did not have. They didn't have uh, any way to communicate with the outside world because, and doctors weren't allowed to leave the country because they wouldn't come back. So this was gonna be a major, you know, nation changing event. And I get a letter from one of the doctors going, hey, half of my family are good guys and the other half are bad guys. And the bad guys are planning to bomb your conference. I went, oh man, it's starting in two days. And of course, his, his letter ended, therefore, I'm not coming. So I went to the general in charge, British gentleman, wonderful man, and said, hey, boss, we got to do something about this. We either cancel the conference or we, we you give me a company of Marines and sniper guards and we move the uh, entire conference to inside the U.S. green zone, which would have been was a logistical nightmare, but he approved it. Uh, we'd put a lot of a lot of time and effort into it, and we brought 500 doctors into the green zone in Baghdad in 2004, held the Iraqi Medical Specialty uh, Conference, and changed the face of medicine in that in that town in the four days we were there. And the and I still, and I want people to hear this. I still get emails and calls from doctors in Iraq, many of whom have who have moved to safer areas, including the United States, saying, thank you, America, again, for my freedoms. Thank you for my country's freedoms. You know, your news doesn't do justice to the good you did for our country, and we want to thank you. <laughs> well, that's pretty nice. I can't see I get any emails like that, but I mostly viewed Iraq from the turret of my tank, which generally preclude, uh, precluded a lot of personal interactions. But uh, let's turn our attention back to the United States and the proposals to reform the military health system. There have been a number of them, uh, some acted upon and some on hold for now, to slash the number of doctors in the military health system. The, these proposals are, are mostly based on studies that have been done that say that the mix of specialties in stateside military hospitals is wrong for the medical needs uh, of the services when they deploy. Uh, the, I guess the, the concern being that the t doctors working in stateside hospitals aren't getting enough experience uh, in the type of care they're going to have to provide when they're deployed. Uh, so from, from your perspective, is, is, is that true? Is that the case? Uh, and uh, are, are military doctors not being prepared properly for uh, what medical challenges they're going to they're gonna face when they're deployed? So we don't have any experience based on current activities that will mimic what might happen 
if these military cutbacks happen. Uh, my experience, uh, I'll, I'll give you a mini example. I commanded the 82nd Airborne Division Clinic uh, on Fort Bragg that took care of 45,000 patients. And I did that with 24 medical providers, six family physicians and 18 PAs or nurse practitioners. And we delivered their babies. We took care of their children. We helped them grow up. We took care of the retirees. We did the full spectrum of medicine. And we went to the uh, field medical clinics and we went to the field with them periodically. So we got to see what it was like to practice medicine from the back of a military ambulance or in a tent that we set up in the field or a combat support hospital that you know we've mobilized and placed places around the country for this COVID crisis. But the bulk of our time was spent doing what our specialties trained us to do. Now, that's also true of the surgeons. When I deployed to Iraq, we deployed with general surgeons, orthopedic surgeons who were coming right out of the operating room and going right to a forward deployed area that had surgical capability. And they saved lives doing what they do, practicing what they do. Now, that makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is if we cut back these uniformed providers that are allowed to do what I just described, to train with the soldiers enough to understand their world, but to keep their surgical and medical skills, specialty skills, current and, and adequate, you've got to be able to do what you do. The proposals that I've read that are happily currently on hold included taking surgeons out of the operating room and put them in the field with the doc, with the uh, soldiers under the assumption that they would get a better feel for their soldier charges and bond with the commands. And I'm, t I'm sorry, but that's not what a doctor needs to do. A doctor needs to be seeing patients. And, I'll, and, and the military and the civilian leadership that, that guides the military it are, are so easily misled by the failure to understand the environment we, the doctors work in. You know, and here's this is a funny story, and it's a great example in a very small way. My clinic was busy all day. Every appointment slot was filled every day, and I had 24 providers. One of them was a young major, Danny Rosari, who won't mind my using his name, who came to me at the middle one day and says, hey, hey, sir, I can't do my afternoon clinic because my battalion commander wants me to come to his one o'clock staff meeting. And I looked at him and said, you know, you're fully booked with patients, right? And these are your command's patients. These are their, their wives and their children. Sir, he's a brand new commander and he's in, you know, division or, or battalion commander. I guess I have to go. I said, stay right there. Don't leave the door while I call the division commander who was my patient and a friend. And I said, sir, if I told you how wonderful this Dr. Irizarry is that works for your battalion commander, uh, not recently, Bob, is there a reason you want to tell me now? And I go, well, yes, sir. It seems like his battalion commander wants him to stop seeing patients this afternoon and come to a staff meeting. Division commander goes, got it, Bob. I'm going to kill the son of a gun. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> and within minutes, the battalion commander called the doctor and said, why don't you stay right where you are and do what you're supposed to do? So, but, and, and the reason I tell that story is those same mistakes of logic can be made in, in an active duty, you know, uh, training environment by uniformed 
personnel. So if they can make the mistake, it's certainly logical that a civilian manager can make that same mistake. You know, we've built a whole new command now that is supposed to be redesigning our military health system. And that command is not happy about these congressional directions to cut back for the, for the very same reasons that I've just described. Huh. Interesting. So, well, in, in your view, then, what changes should be made to ensure the services have the right mix of specialties and enough doctors to handle both the stateside medical needs of the services and the demands of combat? So now that's a that's too big a question for me to answer uh, with you know facts and figures, but I would I would tell you that before any organizational decisions are made to take doctors out of uniform and replace them with civilians, somebody needs to do a fair and reasonable assessment of are those civilian providers available? Because, you know, I retired two months ago from my active practice in a clinic, civilian clinic that I ran in here in North Carolina for 13 years. And one of the reasons I retired is, is a little bit of frustration about not being able to find my own uh, or, or my clinics needed doctors to expand. We were all being worked uh, as hard as we could work. And I tried to find just one doctor to add to my staff of six to become a, a clinic of seven. And I couldn't find him. The only doctors that I would, could find were from Pakistan, uh, India, uh, uh, the Caribbean islands. Uh, most of them didn't speak English well. It was, you know, it's very, very tough to find a U.S. trained doctor with a skill set commensurate with a military trained doctor. And, you know, you you didn't ask me this question, but I want to answer it. You know, is there a difference between the civilian and military uh, systems? Absolutely. And there's pluses and minuses on both sides. You know, the military system, in my opinion, is much more robust and capable at the doctor level than it is in the civilian side. And, a, you know, a great example to, to, to explain that is as a family physician, I'm trained in obstetrics. I deliver babies. I, I, I take care of the pediatric needs of those kids as they grow up. And when dad's done having babies, I do his vasectomies because we do in-house surgeries. I'm a full service physician. And the military doesn't make doctors buy malpractice insurance because if you want to sue a doctor in, in uniform, you have to sue the U.S. government. So frivolous lawsuits don't happen. They still happen, but they're, they don't, they're not like they are on the civilian side. And you don't have insurance companies telling doctors what they can and cannot do. What do I mean by that? When I left the military in 2006 and opened up my private practice, I had just finished delivering a baby under the hundreds that I had delivered in my career. And I applied for my malpractice insurance. And they said, OK, that'll be $10,000 a year unless you deliver a baby, and then it's $90,000 a year. And I went, what? I can't deliver enough babies to pay you $80,000 extra. Nope, that's the way it is. We don't expect you to deliver babies. All right, well, I, at least I can do my my men's vasectomies. Oh, no, that's going to add $6,000 to your insurance. 
Most family docs just send it to the hospital, let the urologist do it for three times the cost, but they can pay the insurance. And I went, well, this is odd. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're basically tying my hands and not letting me do what I'm trained to do, minor surgeries and, you know, deliver babies and, and stay current and, you know, my, both all the skill sets that I have to be trained with when I recertify for, for my family physician's uh, board certification exam. So there, when, when, you, when you find a military doctor looking for jobs, people stumble over themselves to get them. And that's true in the surgical world, too. You know, OBGYN doctors are the most sued profession in the civilian world. And because frivolous lawsuits are, are unheard of in the military, you know, the OB doctors are brilliant and extremely capable and, you know, don't have to wake up in the morning wondering whether they're going to get sued. But once they turn into civilians, uh, the system changes what they are allowed to do and affects their overall happiness. Physician burnout is a common firm, you know, term these days. So it's um, markedly different. And if you take a civilian doctor and put him into the military system, um, A, good luck finding him, and B, good luck having be as good as the doctors that the soldiers have been interacting with their whole careers. And that's a problem. Yeah, I would say so. Well, so turning back to the military health system, some of the proposals I've seen would cut out 18,000 medical professionals from the ranks. What do you think would be the impact of cuts of that size on the overall military health system? Well, you can look at the news right now because um, I can't remember where this happened, but a military um, facility just recently said, we're going we're gonna to shut down our multifunctional clinics like the Robinson Clinic I commanded, and we're going to make it an active duty soldier only clinic. And all retirees and all dependents, you know, pregnant women and children are going to have to go downtown to be seen. And boom, it was done, order given. And the downtown people said, uh, excuse me, we don't have the doctors to handle those patients. We can't do it. And so the government had to scramble and private industry had to scramble and they had to build an extension to their civilian hospital to scramble to try to deal with this military, typical military insta decision um, that created tremendous hardships for the retirees and the children and the mothers. You know, they're going to get it done because, you know, you don't have any choice to get it done. But that that's the biggest issue with any cutback is, is the civilian system able to absorb the patients that are going to be thrown out into the civilian system as a result of the cutback? And the answer is in almost all cases, no. And I'm, I'm going to draw a parallel here to the COVID crisis that's going on right now. Everybody is aware that places like Miami and New York City were, were overwhelmed by uh, COVID crisis patients. Well, nine, the, the biggest reason for that overwhelmment was exactly what we're talking about with the military dumps people onto the civilian system. Most hospital systems operate at an 80 or 90% capacity. So it doesn't take much to overwhelm that system. It's just like New York. They were at 90% when COVID hit 
And so you only needed 10% more patients to overwhelm them. And but it has become, you know, an international story of, you know, failure that, that, you know, failed to anticipate this, this kind of event or maintain the reserve to deal with it. And the, the exact same thing will happen if you cut back 1,000, much less, you know, 18,000 uniformed military providers. We're talking about doctors, nurses, et cetera, uh, and put them out in the civilian system that's already at 80 or 90 percent capacity. Right. Well, so last year you wrote an op-ed in USA Today about these issues, uh, and I was struck particularly by your comments about the issue of finding contract medical providers to deploy with the military. You had some interesting things to say about that. Can you expand on that and explain the challenges of finding contractor doctors to deploy with the troops? Well, yeah, you know, that kind of that kind of makes me laugh out loud just thinking about somebody making decisions like, well, you know, we'll hire this civilian doctor whose kids are in high school and whose wife uh, has no experience with the military and we'll give him a 40-hour job and we'll pay him overtime when he works beyond 40 hours, which they have to do because a lot of these contract doctors, um, you know, it's all written into their contract and our civilian GS doctors, you know, have unions that protect their working hours. And then they say, we would like you to jump on an airplane tomorrow and fly to a foreign country where you're going to work 24 hours a day in a combat environment with people shooting at you. Now, the probability that that doctor would say, sure, yeah, I seem to remember something in my contract about that, um, which if you write a contract like that, no doctor is going to sign it. Um, so the, the, the probability that you're going to find a civilian contract physician, whether he's capable, you know, fully capable or partly capable to run home to his wife and say, hey, sweetheart, I got to get on an airplane today and, uh, you know, head off to a foreign country and uh, be on work in 24 hours and, you know, look at all the overtime I'm going to make. <laughs> I mean, the whole concept fails at so many levels. It's it's literally laughable. <laughs> Right. Well, I was I, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, I I've certainly criticized the military many times over the years for uh, relying so much on on contractors, uh, particularly in in combat zones. Taking contractors along who operate under different rules uh, just adds needless complications to a situation that inherently already has far too many complications to begin with. Uh, I I guess here as a as a last question. Uh, I'm interested to know, like, what do you think from your perspective on the outside looking in? Uh, what do you think? How do you think the military is handling the COVID crisis? Um, I think it's it's appropriate in the midst of our, our COVID demands on the medical system to at least observe that the military is doing a much better job than the civilian world is. Um, you know, we're not sending our soldiers home. We're not telling them to stop doing their jobs. There's been some blips with ships having to pull over and, and stop what they do for a while. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to observe as a physician that uh, I, I think there's this 18,000 person or 12,000 or 1,000 cutback that people are proposing for 
money reasons or budget reasons pales in comparison to what our nation could do in error by overreacting to the seventh cold virus that we've been exposed to. And I don't mean to underplay its significance, just to point out that it is, it is a COVID virus, it's a cold virus, and we're going to build we're going to build herd immunity very quickly. And you know, take learn from what the military is doing. We're going to work. We're doing our jobs, and and people are not dying in 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 doing so. And and that's what doctors are there for is to check people and keep them safe and treat them when they need it. Um, and and I have. I have a bad feeling for the financial distress that's going to come from this that might make people want to try to save money doing exactly what you and I have just tried to explain to the world would be an unwise thing to do. And that's an interesting perspective from someone who has been there. But that's it for this time. You can learn more about the military health system, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POCO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.